Hi, I'm Camille. I'm a professor at the USC School of Drama. I am obsessed with getting to the bottom of why so many talented actors are out of work and what we can do to change that at Speak LA. And I'm Jen. I ran a secret underground agency in LA for over 20 years with a group of actor friends so that we could find our own work. Jen and I interview top industry professionals in the entertainment business with a mission of learning what they know that got them to where they are so that we can share that intel with you. We are your hosts. This episode of Speak LA, the podcast, Underground Actor Talk, is sponsored by Actors Connection. It is also sponsored by the Speak LA membership, which provides you with professional guidance and hands-on mentoring. If you're serious about your acting career, join the Speak LA membership today. We really want to work with you. To join or for more information about the membership, go to ispeakla.com. That's ispeakla.com. Today's guest, Katie McCaffrey, born and raised in New York City, is currently co-head of the TV literary department at the Gersh Agency in Los Angeles. Katie is also one of the founders of We for She, a women's advocacy group that finds practical ways to bring about a gender-balanced landscape in television. Enjoy! How old were you when you moved to LA? 24. Did you know anyone here? No. Where did you live when you got here? Culver City. What was your first job in LA? Temping for a bank. Ah. What was your initial impression of LA? There was so much driving involved. (laughs) So true. (laughs) How many years did it take you of living in LA until it felt like home? It still almost kind of doesn't. Yeah, I know what you mean. Half does. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And if you had to sum up LA in one word, what would that word be? Dreamy. No, it's dreamy. (laughs) (laughs) It is dreamy. It's dreamy. Katie, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is so great. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, we we have not had a lit agent on the show, and um, right. we've been wanting to, and, and you have been the one I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, so um, this is really exciting. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to represent my sisters and brothers in this endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> we are as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will you tell us, like, will you kind of start at the beginning and tell us how you how you got into this field and, you know, was it something you always knew you wanted to do or was, was being in entertainment something you wanted to do or just kind of tell us about the beginnings? So I am the daughter of two lawyers, um, very successful lawyers who worked quite a bit. And I'm sure it would have thrilled them to see me go into law. But, um, you know, <laughs> when you have two working parents, there's a third caregiver, and that is television. And I followed in the footsteps of my third (laughs) caregiver. Um, So I kind of always knew that I wanted to go into television. And for a long time, I thought that that was news. 
because news seemed like, you know, kind of the grown up version of, of doing television. You know, you had to have a good career and all that. So, you know, I came from that family um, and I did work in news for a few years. And it's there. The people who work in news and who are successful in news are so in love with the news. Like they consume it like a meal. You know, they want to talk about it they're, and they're so thoughtful. And I would get home from a day of work and be like, what's that Melrose place? You know, like that. <laughs> that's what I wanted. And, and thankfully some, some inner voice was like, you're that, that's you. That's your news. That's what you love. Just go and try and figure it out. And, um, I, pack, I bought a car. I lived in New York City, so I didn't even own a car. I bought a car. I packed up a car, and I drove across the country and moved to L.A. and just was like, well, other people get jobs in TVs. Why can't I be one of the people who get jobs in TV? Um, and that's sort of how it started. I, I answered an ad. Um, I did some temping non-industry. Non, um, uh, around LA for a little while, but I answered an ad in the back of the Hollywood Reporter, um, looking for an industry assistant. It didn't have any other information other than that. It could have gone terribly awry, uh, <laughs> but it was actually for an assistant job at William Morris. Oh, uh, this wow. is back so long ago when we called it William Morris. It's now <laughs> called WME. Um, so they have they have something like an internal temp. They're called floaters. And basically, it's when an assistant is out sick or maybe is learning a new desk or for whatever reason, they like to have people who understand the systems and practices of, of working for an agent to come in and be able to fill. So I joined the floater pool at William Morris. Um, and I, at the time, I really didn't know what agents did. I sort of thought, oh, well, they represent actors. Um, so I'll, I'll work here for a little while and then maybe they'll, one of these people will work on Melrose place and I'll, <laughs> 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 I wish I was smarter than that, but it really wasn't. Um, but, uh, everybody will tell you the best place to learn the business is at an agency because it really does give you a bird's eye view of how everything works. Um, and especially a big agency like William Morris that has lots of different departments. So, you know, I learned how voiceover for commercials gets sought after and booked. I learned motion picture actors. Um, I learned television literary. And in fact, when I eventually became an agent at William Morris, I became a book agent. Um, and so I learned that whole business and it was, it was really great. Um, but I had started there. And as you know, like when you get, when you, like when you find the first house, like when you go house searching, you, you first house you see, you're like, Oh my God, it's amazing. You're like, but I have to see. <laughs> Right. Um, so I, I eventually left William Morris. Um, I went to work for a pod company uh, with an overall deal at 20th. Um, we were, you know, middling successful. We had a couple of shows on the air. I love those shows, but, you know, it wasn't long term success. I think after about five years, the company folded. Um, I think I made a person in that space, too. Um, and then I. Uh, I, I think I shot a pilot. I became an independent producer. I shot a pilot, made another person, and then went to, <laughs> went to, to 20th as an executive for a very short amount of time. I worked in the current department at 20th. And it was at 20th, which is one of the most prolific providers of um, entertainment, where it really was hammered in. And it wasn't though I didn't know it or anybody didn't know it, but it was really so clear to see that we had a massive gender disparity issue in television and it's a, across the board. I'm not going to tell you or your listeners anything they don't know right now, but like women creators, they're not enough women directors, not enough women just being staffed, not enough women crew members, just not enough. We're not even close to parody. 
let alone 51%, which is, as you know, the amount of women that there are in the population. Um, but it was it was because I was there and because it didn't seem like the executives really had the tools that they needed to create change that they, you know, they wanted to is where, you know, my origin story for a company called We For She started. Um, and I started that company with three other women. They all have their own origin stories, but mine was kind of like born out of this. I really wanted to do something that felt like I was making a difference in terms of affecting um, gender parity in television. You know, not only is it right and good to, you know, just employ women <laughs> equally, <Yeah. laughs> but in television in particular, it's so important because television is the medium that you invite into your home. You're sitting on your couch and you ask it to come and sit with you while you're in your pajamas, right? You know, movies, you can, it's a little bit distant. You have a little bit of a barrier, but television is very intimate. And so if you're going to kind of hide vegetables inside of macaroni and cheese, meaning like if you're going to hide a feminist message, if you're going to hide just a, a, a BIPOC message, if anything is going to be kind of delivered into a home that maybe isn't necessarily thinking it's a big deal, um, I think it has to go in television. Uh, it's just one of those mediums that, that affects change without you kind of really knowing it. I, we have, um, I have a, a client who was on Will and Grace for a very long time. And he always says that he used to get these letters about like how from parents who didn't understand their kids at all. And just by watching Will and Grace and falling in love with those characters, they were able to, to relate and love their, their kids again. And that's what I mean when I say that about television. And so it was, it was getting people jobs through we for she women jobs through we for she that sort of reminded me that that's the part of representation that I really love. It's finding these voices that need advocates for them to, to say these are important stories, these are important people, these are the people who are going to change national dialogue in funny and interesting ways, you know, not just through the, the political pulpit. Um, and that's what sort of said to me, okay, it's get back into representation. You can, you can do this in a way that makes it feel um, purposeful. And th- particularly that's my company is that way, is purposeful representation. Mm. I like, you know, it's interesting because I think we... I think a lot of people, when we think about um, change, making change in the world, we don't always know how to do it or where to begin. And um, I think you can think sometimes about the entertainment industry and think, well, how do I make my mark in this place? How do I make the, my, you know, how do I make a change in having my own voice? And I think a lot of um, actors and a lot of writers often at the beginning it can almost seem like because you love the profession so much, you know, it's like such a, it's such a love of what you're doing. It feels so good when you're acting or you're writing or you're doing something like that. Like, how do I actually get my voice in there? And so I really like that you're saying that because it is like that image of having the, um, the vegetables within, like within everything, like the, it just, it's something that gets translated in this way that you don't even expect that is, that is happening for you. Um, so you can do something that you really love to do and at the same time start changing the world, which you don't even realize you're doing. Exactly. Just by being somebody from a different perspective than the ones that we've kind of given the microphone to for kind of the entire history of television, um, you affect change. You know, just by being your voice and being true to your voice and, and getting it out there as clearly as you can and telling that story as authentically as you can. Yeah, I, I'd love I'd love to hear about um, what your average workday is in terms of your profession, but I'd also love to hear about it in terms of this lens that you're talking about, which is 
um, looking at creating more opportunities for people in the entertainment industry? Like, is there a specific way in which you approach your workday or submissions that you receive or even working with your writers? Like, what does that look like? Well, that's probably a two pronged question. I mean, my, my workday is, it's very busy. I mean, that is the truth of it. Um, I have a, a good amount of business that's in different time zones. So I will often start a work day, maybe around six or six thirty, just to kind of get some of my UK writers or uh, other creators, you know, whatever calls that they need to have done before it gets too late for them. Um, and sometimes they're they're nice enough that they'll, I don't know, call me in the cab on the way home from a dinner or something. But for the most part, we do try and get that done early. Then I'll take a little break. I do have kids, so it's like. You wake up, get them dressed, get them out the door, whatever, you know, sign whatever needs to be signed. Um, and then, um, you know, I try and get back to it you know, no later than 9 uh, a.m. And then it, it's divided up. It's divided between um, staff meetings that we have to do internally. Um, and I'm saying have to, but it's that's a little pejorative because it's also get to, right? Like when you can pull together a lot of agents, that's a lot of resources, uh, from different information, even internally in your own department, you know, from different networks. And then some days it's it's staff meetings with people from other departments. So it's what are these talents doing? What are these future directors doing? Like all of that stuff is is really great resources of information and so important, honestly, for an entire week's worth of work is to, to kind of take the temperature. We have in almost every staff meeting, we have a, a good two minutes. It's like, okay, what's the gossip, right? What has everybody heard? What did everybody hear over the weekend? You know, because that stuff is as important, if not more important than what gets in the trades, because usually we know the gossip before it ever hits the trades, right? So <laughs> the, the gossip is, is usually, it's not usually, a, you know, so-and-so did such and such unless so-and-so is a big name star and such and such is signed on to a movie over the weekend, you know, so that, that's the gossip. Um, so this is, it's all very important stuff. And, um, you know, there's minimum of one a day, but there can be two and that's a big portion of the day. Um, there's a ton of calls and the calls are kind of separated into systems. Um, it's returning calls of people who need information from me, either, um, you know, buyers, people who are looking for certain kinds of development or people who are looking for certain kinds of talent being writers or directors, which is I, what I primarily focus on, uh, to come and work on their shows. Um, other ones that are already created or to come and work on shows of ideas for that they have. Um, it's also, I, I, the co-head of my department. So it's a lot of working with my colleagues in terms of what do they need so that their business can be really great and thriving, um, working with the heads of my company in terms of this is what they need for their businesses to be thriving. You know, let's, let's think about how we can go ahead and get that. Um, and then if I'm really lucky, a small portion of those calls are my proactive strategic thinking. Right. This is what you're, this is the latter part of what you're talking about, which is like, okay, I have these clients either, you know, these clients, X amount of clients are new to me or Y amount of clients have new ideas. So let me take a breath. Who am I calling about these things? Who am I introducing them to? Who's going to respond to them? Who's going to be most likely to meet with them or talk about them? Um, and so each one of those people probably is between five to 15 calls. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have all those conversations. That would be impossible. A big part of making the calls is just making them <laughs> just sort of starting the volley that is, is kind of closing the loop on phone calls. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's, and it's the last part is talking to the clients, which is the most important part, being really extra communicative with all of the people on your roster so that they know that you're 
you hear them, they, they know how to talk about them, how to advocate for them. I mean, you're on the same page in what regard you want to advocate for them. Um, that's a really big part of it. A lot of balls in the air, a lot of, <laughs> lot of moving parts. Um, when you say at the beginning, you said um, the, the, you referred to the buyers. Can you, mm-hmm. can you just explain, is that studios? Is that like, what, who are the buyers? It's a good question because it's different in every conversation, right? So sometimes if I have a, a writer who's trying to, who's come up with a new idea for a show, the first buyer is going to probably be a producer that I want to partner them with. But I'll usually call them a producer, not a buyer. But still, they're the first <laughs> line of defense. Um, what I'll do is I'll take that idea to maybe 15 producers, maybe less, you know, try and be as specific as possible um, and set up a time for them to talk about the idea. And then hopefully we find a match. And we, you know, together they form that idea a little bit further. Then with those two in place is we start to that first layer of buyers. That'll be the studios. Um, they're the ones who are really deficit financing. They're the ones with the checkbook. Um, and they're going to have their own position on what this development should look like and how it's going to go out the door. But hopefully you find a match there as well. And then once that's all formed, you go to that last layer of the buyers, which we used to call the networks. Network is no longer really the right term. It's platforms, right? Because we have streamers, we have cablers, Mm. we have broadcast networks. Um, And I guess in some regards, you know, we used to have places like Quibi or there's always something. So you need this kind of all encompassing phrase now. So it's, it's, you know, that'll go to the platforms. Now the platforms don't buy everything, right? The, the real money comes from the studio, but the studio still needs to put it on somewhere. That needs to go somewhere to a platform where the eyeballs can watch it. The studio, the platforms will pay a little bit money back to the studios, but the studios then retain some ownership of the material to use on in other regards, maybe to sell, you know, the, um, the long-term rights over into foreign territories, you know, maybe Israel or the UK or just depending. Um, there's lots of ways to exploit a piece of material. Uh, beyond just our domestic market. Wow. Katie, when you're like, when you're looking at a project and you're talking about a project with one of your clients or, you know, any of, any of your colleagues are any of your fellow agents, how, how, and I'm sure this is a hard question to answer, but like, how much would you say is, you know, fresh, artistic, creative, new ideas? And how much is like, this is hot right now, or this is the trend, or like, you know, like, would you say, and again, I I know this is probably a hard question, but that agents respond more to the first or the second more? Uh, I think the first, undoubtedly, the first. Um, You can't chase a trend, um, Mm -hmm. because the minute that the networks say that that they want something, um, everybody's already got it, right? So they're going to have 15 pitches, um, immediately, or they'll just move off of it. Now, if you came to me with an idea that you, that you loved, you know, that was fresh and interesting and it happened to meet something that one of the buyers said that they wanted recently, I'll be like, great, you know, like, (laughs) let's get this out the door right away. This is a, this is perfect timing, but, um, I I will, I will never chase a need. I, I think it's something that a very young agent learns very quickly. Because um, it takes writers and directors and anybody creative or artistic a little bit of time, thankfully, to form a really good idea. Um, and so if I tell you on a Tuesday that, you know, ABC is looking for vampires and it takes you two weeks to come up with a good idea, well, 
vampires are already bought at, wow. at ABC, you know, it's over. So it just doesn't really, um, it doesn't really make sense to, to, to try and reverse engineer into a need. That being said, like, listen, we always know there's going to be a need for medical dramas. There's always going to be some sort of franchise lawyer situation, big tentpole ideas that told through a different lens that's generally saleable. Those worlds, those genres, those oeuvres, that, that's kind of the, oh, okay, I get it. I can put it at least semi in this category. I know who to talk about because I have to give you feedback in terms of, yeah, what are the platforms that would buy something like this? Even if it's a great new fresh idea, I have to, my job is, is not to just be like, well done is, but is to actually help you take your art and make money off of it. And when a, when a client, when a new client is, is coming to you through, you know, referral or submission, their own submission or whatever, what, what would you say are the key other than, I mean, I guess you're speaking to it a little bit, you know, somebody that's creative and has fresh ideas and obviously is a good writer, but what would you say are qualities that, that, you know, an agency is looking for? Right. Well, I think every agency is is a little bit different and there are different types of agencies across the board. So having a keen understanding of um, those differences are probably really important as you go about approaching representation. But for me, uh, I don't carry a huge roster of clients. My business is not set up that my company is not set up that way for us to have hundreds and hundreds of people and we sort of throw the names against the wall and hope they stick. It's a much more kind of surgical type of representation. So one of the things that I'm going to look at is, you know, can I be beneficial to you? Are are, are there too many on my roster like you? Um, because then I'm not, but one of my colleagues might be great, right? So once, once I've discovered that, I'm still going to dive into the material and I'm going to take a look and I want to see, um, you know, if you're a writer is it storytelling that understands form and structure, but then somehow breaks it, right? Like they know the rules, so they know why they want to break the rules. I want to see something interesting there. I want to see a version of the story that I haven't seen told in that way. I do want it to feel authentic. I want it to feel like it comes from a place only you or you and your partner could have described. You know, And, and that isn't to say that you can't write you know, like you can write an alien story and I don't assume you're an alien, right? <laughs> but can you ground it? Can, you, can it be, yes, it's an alien story who's um, struggling with their siblings, right? And you're one mm-hmm. of five and you were a twin. So you've never had private moment in your life, right? And that all of that good, juicy, honest stuff is intrinsically in there. And then you've grown it out to something larger. Um, and it's sort of the same thing with my directors is I want to take a look at the, the tape that they have. Um, my mom actually asked me recently, like, how do you tell if somebody's a good director? And it's like, well, can you tell they're directing? No. Okay, well then that's a good director, right? <laughs> like, are you are you yeah. sitting there watching something and you're not thinking about it, right? You're not like, ooh, that camera move. Or like a good director gets you so deep into what you're watching, you don't even realize you're supposed to be evaluating it anymore. Mm. It just and then maybe you come out of it and you're like, Oh yeah, there was all this great stuff, but as you're in it. They've just completely sucked you in. To me, that's an amazing director. And when you when you pitch a client to a buyer, um, do you do you like you use the analogy or the example of um, you know from a family of five twin no time like do you pitch that too like do you say you know they've written this amazing script and it's about a family of five and they're from this fam this crazy family and they like do you sort of sell them? 
at the same yeah if it, yeah. If it relates to the material and why i think it's saleable um but here's the thing is that if something sells that's terrific i always want that to happen but usually it doesn't right yeah. so what the minimum of what i'm trying to do is get my client in the room with this person that i'm talking to and maybe it's going to be about this script or maybe it's just going to be a general meeting so yeah i'm pitching the material you're going to really like this but you should get to know this person they're really cool they have an interesting backstory um, as much as I can know the buyers personally, um, and sort of say, oh, you, you both have kids that went to such and such, or, mm. hey, you're both from Oklahoma. I, I try and create those connective points to get people in the room to make those relationships. Because again, maybe they don't buy the piece of material that they have, but they say, oh, you know what? Actually, I'm staffing up this show that I think you'd absolutely be perfect for. You You and the showrunner both are also from Oklahoma or whatever, right? I'm just really trying to create relationships for people. I love that answer. And and the reason that I asked the question and you, and you answered it in a very satisfying way for my question is that we interview a lot of, you know, we interview a lot of people about acting tips and um, advice. And something that so often comes back is the best advice people feel they can give is to be is to be true to yourself within your art, and I feel like you know if you're it, it, to to any you know young or or new writers I should say that are listening, um, it sounds like it's the same thing with writing. Like it, you know because if you're if you're pitching them and trying to connect them with other people on what truly makes them who they are. Um, then to, to, to be true to that within your work seems like it would be an asset. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's really the only thing that you can do to differ yourself from anybody else. Right. You're the only you that you have. Right. It's so funny how that's something that people forget so often, you know, how unique your voice is. And I, I, we were just talking about that briefly, Katie, but I, I have a lot of conversation with my students about, kind of their unique voice. And a lot of them are like, well, how is my voice going to be different from somebody else's? And we talk about it in acting, but a lot of my students are interested in creating their their own work. And a lot of the actors that we work with are interested in creating their own work as well. And we always say that exact same thing that you're, you're talking about. It's like your voice will stand alone on itself because there is no other voice like yours. And that's the beauty of it. Right. But it's so funny how we, we just... We, we forget that so often. And I think, um, and I can imagine with writing, it would be very similar in terms of like finding your niche as a writer and how a lot of people might come to you and say like, well, you know, um, have this like work on a, in, a, in a particular genre. And again, this is not my expertise, so you're going to tell us, but like, they might be like really, really funny, but they're really good at doing drama or something like that, or they don't quite know where to begin with finding where their niche is or how to connect to their voice. Do you help your clients with that kind of help them get to that place? Or do you see them sort of going in one direction and you say, you know what, why don't you start going in this direction? Um, no, I would never tell a client to go one direction or, or another, especially I would never tell a writer. To, mm -hmm. to, to choose one part of what they want to write about over another. Um, because, you know, nobody gets into writing to do one thing or to, to write one character. You know, they, they want yeah. to write 500 before they're dead. That's the whole point of being a writer, right? You know, I think probably similar with acting is that you want to play lots of different roles. What I'll say is, you know, 
I'm not going to advise you on your art. That's not for me to do. I can't do it. I'm not skilled that way. Uh, but I can advise you on the business. And it's because I spend every day sort of collecting information and I'm going to give it back to you and I'm going to pass it through my filter. And then I'm going to say, do you agree with that filter? Or what do you think about that filter? How can we use that filter you know, to your advantage? So if I have a writer who perhaps has had quite a bit of success in one genre, but is like, ah, I really want to try, can I get a job on this comedy, right? Let's just use that. Like, okay, let's use your example. Like they write horror. They've been known to write horror. Everybody loves yeah. their horror. But they're like, you know, I want to... I really want to work on a comedic show and I'm like, or I want to sell a comedic show. I said, okay, let's create some bridges here. Right. Can you write me a comedic horror? Yeah. Right. Can you write me a horrific comedy? Can you <laughs> help me take you in a few steps to the direction that you want to go? Because you're right. Most people are thinking about you one way. And um, this is a little bit of a fear-based industry. So there's not a lot of fear in investing in somebody who's already proven themselves in one genre, right? You can, you can go to your bosses and say like, this is a good bet. We should spend millions of dollars on this because they made tens of millions of dollars the last time they did it, right? Low risk. Um, if you ask them to do something completely that they've never done and I'd be like, and still give me millions of dollars, that's really hard. But if you can kind of take them all along on a little journey with you to get you to the next level, then it becomes easier. Um, we have lots of, of directors who do that. And in fact, I really encourage it. I think diversifying your portfolio is one of the most important things that you can do, not only as an agent, but as a writer, as a director, like you never know when some genre is going to kind of go out of fashion and not, you know, be the thing that everybody wants and, and to be able to be a little bit flexible and versatile or take, take your skill set and know how to translate it for somebody else's purposes is a really important thing in terms of giving yourself a long-term career. So can I, I just want to ask one follow-up question and I know we're getting close to time, but um, so a, a new writer who's just beginning, how would you suggest they find their niche or how would you suggest they begin to explore in that way? Well, I wouldn't suggest they find a niche. I would say get out. Don't don't put those limits on yourself, um, especially if you're very new, right? Um, you want to be writing what excites you, what doesn't feel like a burden, um, because writing is one of the hardest jobs out there, and it's so self motivated. Like I can't make you write. I can't put my hands over your hands. You have to want to do it. Um, so writing something that makes you want to get up and put your fingers on the typewriter, typewriter, I'm so funny, <laughs> um, put your fingers on the keyboard, um, then, you know, that's what you should write. And it may not be the thing that sells, but it may be something that your passion comes through and therefore some representative or some piece of talent that wants to attach or some producer or some program, you know, one of these beginning programs falls in love with it because you poured your love into it. Um, and that may not be where you land. You know, there's plenty of writers who didn't think that this is what they were going to do, but it does seem to be something that just kind of naturally flows out of them. Well, I love that answer because going back to the beginning of our conversation, I feel like that's what you did, Katie. Like you, you didn't know why you were driving to LA really, you know, you didn't know why you were getting that job at William Morris really, you know, I think, I think that's a perfect example of, you know, you don't have to have it all figured out at the beginning, just kind of keep, 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 keep doing things that um, push you forward and that excite you. And I, I love your, I love your phrase of that doesn't feel like a burden. That's, that's a mm -hmm. great, that's a great um, way to think about it. Um, so thank you for that. 
Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Sadly, we are out of time. We we always like to end with um, asking asking our guests uh, if there's anything unique about LA that they can share. We sh- we call it an LAism, but anything that because I know you you grew up in New York City, um, very far right. away from LA and very different from LA in many ways. But is there anything about LA that you would say you've noticed is um, unique only to LA? Um, people in LA are obsessed with bread but like not like normal (laughs) people are obsessed with bread it's like do you eat it should you eat it can you eat it what kind can you eat like it comes up at least once a day in a conversation i am certain of it and it's like it's it's almost like a vaccination question like should we eat bread like is it a good thing for bread it seems like it's good like bread a lot of people enjoy bread is a huge topic of conversation i'm sorry sorry oh my god you're so right that's That's really really true true. i've never thought of it like that before but it's so true oh my god the good news is that this is your bread conversation for the day ladies it's true later oh my god i'm embarrassed to say i am very guilty of that as well I love bread and I sometimes feel guilty about bread and I like to talk about bread. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. We're still working it out and we're using each other as sounding boards. That's a perfect answer. Thank you, Katie. Oh, I've learned so much today and I, I really appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Hey guys. For all of you who are looking for professional guidance and hands-on mentoring for your acting career, join the Speak LA membership today. To join or for more information about the membership, go to ispeakla.com. That's the letter ispeakla.com. Our sound engineer is the very talented Dan Leonard of homevoiceoverstudio.com. My name is Jen Jostin. And I'm Camille thornton Awesome, and we are the founders of Speak LA. You can find us at ispeakla.com. See you next time. Bye.